Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I am excited to present to you, finally, the breakout session that we held at Freedom Fest. We actually held a regular main stage session, and we're sponsors of that, which we've already posted, and you can also watch on YouTube, and which was about nationalism. But later in that same day, we actually held a breakout session called The Liberty Antidote to Christian Nationalism. It was a panel of Jacob Wintergrad, Norman Horn, Ryan McMakin of the Mises Institute, and Kerry Baldwin. We also included a video from Alex Bernardo, who wasn't able to join us at the last minute, so you'll be able to hear perspectives against Christian nationalism from the Libertarian Christian Institute, which is an excellent panel discussion. I will have to apologize a little bit because we were expecting the venue to actually record the audio from the microphones that were you know, going through the speaker system in that room. And what happened was that didn't get done. And so we are left with either, I don't know if it's from my iPhone or from my Sony camera, we are left with the audio from the camera. So of course, Podsworth Media does a tremendous job cleaning stuff up, but there is only so much you can do. Thankfully, there's about an eight-minute segment that Alex recorded right into his mic, so that'll sound pretty normal because that's what happened. But in any case, hope you can forgive the lack of audio planning because we were expecting things to be taken care of. And uh, note to self, always do a backup next time. So anyway, without further ado, here is the discussion panel, The Liberty Antidote to Christian Nationalism. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. My name is Jacob Wonegrad. I'm one of the podcast hosts with the Libertarian Christian Institute, and I will be moderating our session here on Christian nationalism. So our founder, Norman Horn, said this morning on the main stage that a little bit of nationalism goes a long way. But what happens when you get a little too much nationalism? Well, here are some quotes from some nationalists. I'll read them, and then maybe you guys can try to guess as to which authoritarian leader the quote is from. All right, so, first one. Indeed, one ought to prefer and to love more those who are more similar to him, and much good would result in the world if we all preferred our own and minded our own business. Furthermore, since shared culture is necessary for living well, Nations have a right of exclusion in the interest of cultural preservation. I do you want to know who that one is? Want to venture a guess? Maybe Stalin or Mao? Let's try another one. We know by instinct or reason and reason that we ought to prefer some over others. It is also evident from both instinct and reason that we ought to prefer our own nation and countrymen over others. This instinct is natural and therefore good. Anyone know what that one is? Some 19th century dude. <laughs> Maybe Mussolini or Hitler? David Ben Zorin. The guy from Israel. <laughs> well, actually, it says right here that this is all from Stephen Wolf, author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. So, oof. Well, well, let's see. Let's read another quick one. A civil magistrate can punish heretical teaching, false rites, 
blasphemy, Sabbath-breaking, because such actions can amise public harm, both harm to the soul and harm to the body politic. And this one's my personal favorite. When I read this, I had to go grab a cup of coffee so I could do a spit take for my wife. A mother nursing her child has the child's immediate good in mind, but that action, as part of a totality of action in the nation, is for the national good. For well-nursed children grow up to be healthy, productive, and sacrificial participants in the nation. In this way, the nursing of children is a national action, and the good of nursing is not only the child's good directly, but the nation's good. Now, Wolf is just one figure in the growing movement of Christian nationalist sentiment that many are observing in the church today. So we here at the Libertarian Christian Institute are going to address this problem and offer what we believe to be the antidote is to it. And to do this, we have four panelists who have different backgrounds and areas of expertise, all whom are Christians and have a different angle on what the Christian nationalists get wrong. And we're also going to have some time for Q&A at the end. Our first panelist, unfortunately, wasn't able to join us this week, but he did record his presentation for us. His name is Alex Bernardo. He's another one of the podcast hosts at LCI. He read Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, as, I, as did I, and he did a comprehensive review on it, which you can find on our website, and he's also going to talk about it here in his presentation. So Stephen Wolf's The Case for Christian Nationalism has become kind of like the seminal work on Christian nationalism in American discourse around the politics of Christian nationalism today. And he's very, very popular in large part because his book is the longest and the most exhaustive treatise on Christian nationalism and because he's received widespread promotion, both positively by people that believe in and accept in his version of Christian nationalism and negatively by people on the left that want to assign all of the evils of conservatism to Wolf's interpretation of Christian nationalism. So it's been an incredibly popular work. There are a lot of problems with Stephen Wolf's book, however, and it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a qualified libertarian to understand them. Now, if you're a Christian, the biggest problem with this book is that Stephen Wolf on page 16 says that he makes little attempt to interpret the Bible. So he's not trying to fit his explanation of Christian nationalism into a biblical framework. He doesn't care about that at all. He's trying to do something else. And so for any serious Christian, whether you're Orthodox or Protestant or Catholic, anyone that tries to come up with a comprehensive political system that has no basis whatsoever in biblical interpretation is automatically doomed to failure from the start. And he's going to argue very early on in his book that Christian nationalism is inherent to creation and that human beings, even before the flood in Genesis chapter one and two, would have naturally divided themselves into different nations. More shockingly, he also claims that members of those different nations would have to learn how to fight and go to war in order to defend themselves. But if you read the rest of the first few chapters of Genesis, it's just very obvious that that is not the case. Of course, God makes the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, where he kind of establishes parameters for social order. And it doesn't seem like human beings are fully divided until Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. Again, Wolf makes no attempt to interpret the scripture. And in fact, he winds up imposing his 
his version of Christian nationalism upon it. He makes mistake after mistake after mistake in interpreting the scripture. He also says that in his vision of Christian nationalism, Christians ought to advocate to have Christian laws. Now, he doesn't mean laws like making sure that people don't murder each other and making sure that people don't steal each other's stuff, which I do believe legitimately arise out of a Judeo-Christian framework. So in some sense, those could be construed as Christian laws, but this isn't what Stephen Wolf means. What Wolf means in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism by Christian Laws, are imposing certain values such as the making Sabbath and church attendance mandatory, having laws against public profanity, having laws about certain kinds of dress and things like that, and punishing people who break those laws with violence of either incarceration or sometimes, as he would suggest, even death. But if you look at the Bible, again, all throughout the book of Acts, you have figures like Peter and like Paul interacting with these political authorities. And what do Peter and Paul do when they're around either the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, in Peter's case, or the leaders within the Roman Empire in Paul's case? Do they advocate that they change Roman law in order to accommodate very particular Christian doctrines and Christian values? No. Instead, they preach the gospel to them. And a lot of people, especially Roman leaders, wind up actually kind of liking what they have to say. So there's just no biblical evidence whatsoever, that there is a path for violently imposing specific doctrinal issues on people, which is what Wolf is advocating for. And his rhetoric is very subtle, and it's very difficult to pick up on that unless you read Wolf's book closely. Another point that he's going to make is that there has to be someone that implements these Christian laws. And it's not good enough just to have kind of like a neutral, classically liberal government that protects people's natural rights. Instead, you have to have a chief magistrate, what Stephen Wolf is going to call the Christian prince. And he is going to impose his law by violence. And again, for Stephen Wolf, this isn't the protection of people's natural rights, which does sometimes require violence by civil authority, which does sometimes require violence by civil authorities, but rather the imposition of very particular doctrinal consequences using sometimes very violent means. So again, he's not classical liberal in his conception at all. And another big problem with Stephen Wolf's work is that it really is a return to medieval structures of power. So Wolf is really good at using the language of classical liberalism and freedom and autonomy. But what he means by that is a return to this kind of divine right of king, medieval absolutist framework that we overcame after after the Enlightenment. And so I think one of the reasons why so many people buy into Stephen Wolf's version of Christian nationalism is that he is very good at subtly manipulating the language to make it seem as if what he is proposing is actually in line with classical liberalism, when in reality, it is not. And again, his conception of a Christian prince is just like an absolute monarch in late medieval or early modern England or France. It's somebody that has absolute power to violently impose their theological worldview on other people who are unwilling. It's not creating a neutral political space. And again, we've read the Bible before. We know that in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says that if his disciples want to be great, they can't be like the those that lord over the Gentiles. Instead, real power and real greatness within the kingdom of God come from serving other people, not imposing your doctrines with the threat of either incarceration or of death. And Stephen Wolf is happy to lean in to this idea that there will be this Christian prince who would do the exact opposite of what Jesus commands his followers to do. Another very shocking aspect of Stephen Wolf's book is his open call for violent revolution. He's not subtle about this at all. It's not just a hint. He says that Christians have a right to violently overthrow their government. Now, I understand that 
There's a lot of complications in terms of trying to understand American history through this. But we have to remember is that the Christian's default setting should not be violence and coercion. Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, rather, that those who live by the sword will die by the sword, cutting off the possibility that Christians should ever initiate violence against other people who are not a threat to them through violence. And then he also says in John 18 that his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's not like the other kingdoms, not because it's somewhere else, but because his followers are not picking up the sword to try to fight and defend him. And so Wolf's conception of power is challenged all throughout the Bible. And again, what we have to remember with Stephen Wolf's book is that this is not classical liberalism. Stephen Wolf is very good at using that language, but in reality, that language is denoting structures of power that are very familiar to those that understand the late medieval and early modern power structures in Europe. And this is going to lead me to my final point before I wrap up here. The cross is really a subversion of this view of medieval power. The classic text for this is Philippians 5, or is Philippians 2, rather, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, where Paul says you need to have the attitude that Christ Jesus had, who he existed in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality to be something to be held on to, but rather Jesus emptied it. And then he also emptied himself by giving himself over to death on the cross. And it's for that reason that God highly exalted him and made him Messiah. And in Stephen Wolf's book, there is none of that biblical understanding of power. And this is the point that I want to end on here is that for Stephen Wolf and the other Christian nationalists, they don't care about classical liberalism. They don't care about what the Bible has to say about power and the way that that should be wisely wielded in particular situations. It is nothing but a naked grasp at power and authority over other people. They're nothing more than central planners and authoritarians, the exact kind of people that we should be wary of. Right, yeah, that was Alex's presentation. And although he's not here to answer questions, I have also the great privilege of reading Stephen Wolf's book. So if any of you during Q&A have questions about that, I could try to field those for you. But our next speaker is... Carrie Baldwin. Carrie is the host of the Reformed Libertarians podcast, which is part of the LCI podcast network. And she's going to respond to Christian nationalism from the Reformed perspective. So Carrie, take it away. Thank you very much. I want to say it's a, a little bit ironic, maybe a little bit of poetic justice that I get to speak against this idea of Christian nationalism, because it is coming from people who claim to be Reformed or Calvinist. So not only am I giving the <laughs> Reformed response to why they're wrong, I'm also a woman, which sort of ticks them off. <laughs> <laughs> so first I want to say something about nationalism, because there are a lot of American Christians today that really like the idea of nationalism, think that it's just about getting back to America's core principles you know, our mythos, our American mythos was, was founded on these classical liberal ideas of individual freedom, free markets, human flourishing, no divine right of kings, those sorts of things. And so when they hear nationalism, they think the American mythos. And this is what we would otherwise know, it, what we would otherwise call patriotism. Now, patriotism was also an ideology that was used in the, early two, in the early 2000s during the Bush administration in order to further a neoconservative agenda, which was a nationalist agenda. 
So the interesting thing about nationalism is that it's a sentiment towards a group of people that you share common ground with. It may be ethnicity, it may be cultural ties, that sort of thing. But the other thing that nationalism must do is that it must accomplish the task of protecting the collective identity. So it's a very collectivist ideology. And that, in and of itself, runs counter to the Christian idea, which we are all individually image bearers of God. Individually, we have inherent rights. Individually, we have an individual identity, even if we have shared common traits amongst each other that tie us into communities. Christian nationalism itself, though, is a sentiment that is about shared cultural ties, but that's not exactly what ties Christians together. Our Christian identity is in Christ himself. And we are, the, the church is drawn from every nation, every language, and so we don't have the cultural ties as such. What ties us together is our identity in Christ. So those are just a few things that I want to start out with. The problems with Christian nationalism Though, first of all, is when you ask yourself, what is it about the American cultural identity that we're trying to protect? Because if you're on the left, the thing that we're trying to protect is democracy. The people who got upset at what happened on January 6th, for example, found that to be an attack on our national sovereignty. So you have nationalists on the left. You have liberal Christians right, who believe in upholding democratic values. You have Christians on the right who believe in upholding the values of the nuclear family or the republic. And so which one, which one is right? Well, this is what we've been fighting about for decades, right, between Democrats and Republicans. How is this any different? So those are some things to think about. But let's assume for the sake of argument that Christians could actually agree on what is our common collective identity. Does Christianity, does the Bible actually support the idea that we should be Christian nationalists? And we would argue no. The first thing is the role of civil governance itself. Using legal coercion to enforce against non-aggressive immorality, we pay is illegitimate. This is not something that is prescribed in scripture. It's not prescribed in Romans 13, for example. We would say that the libertarian principle of non-aggression is a God-given norm for civil justice expressed in the biblical affirmation of the law of proportionate retribution, also known as lex talionis, or an eye for an eye. In the Bible, God reveals his prescriptive Ordination of the legitimate use of coercive retribution against aggressors to enforce restitution by aggressors to their victims, strictly limiting civil governance to this task. In other words, when we look at passages like Romans 13, that is not describing what the state is, otherwise we would have to be baptizing the sorts of things that Stalin did or Hitler did or Mao did which are direct contradictions of scripture. For example, thou shalt not murder. Instead, we look at Romans 13 as being prescriptive. 
it is prescribing what civil, civil governance ought to look like, and it is strictly limited to the bounds of aggression against others. So non-aggressive immorality issues, let's take blasphemy as an example, is not a matter of God-ordained God civil justice. Therefore, it's not something that is remedied by the sword or lex talionis, and so falls outside the jurisdiction of civil justice. So that's number one. These things are just not a matter of God-ordained civil justice. Number two is that Christian nationalists want to take over the monopoly state. Monopoly government in itself is a violation of civil justice since it's predicated on, the aggre on aggression to exist in the first place. So that's the threat of violence and extortion for its survival. Now, there are a lot of Christians who will look at what's happening in society, what's happening in the government, and they'll say to themselves, gee, I wish there was a political philosophy written into scripture so that we could just have this blueprint. So they turn to the Old Testament because there was a blueprint, but that was for a very specific time for a very specific people. And I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament theocracy in Israel. It's easy to think that the Mosaic Covenant is a biblical political philosophy, but this ignores the historical theological purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. The purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, ultimately, was for Christ to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf so that we could be a part of the kingdom of God. Hebrews 8.13 tells us the Mosaic Covenant is rendered obsolete and is no longer applicable. For Christians to try to establish the theocratic system as a universally applicable political philosophy is to completely miss the purpose of Christ fulfilling it. It's theologically problematic to the point of denying the gospel itself. The old Mosaic Covenant was not, at the time that it was in effect, was not a violation of the non-aggression principle because it was specially instituted by God, and it is also complete and obsolete. But now, a model for new covenant-era civil governance is, excuse me, but, but not a model for new covenant civil governance. In other words, because Christ has already fulfilled it, the purpose of that Old Testament theocracy is now obsolete. So when Christian nationalists are looking back to that as their blueprint, they are completely ignoring the theological implications, which is the purpose of the Old, the Old Testament covenant to begin with. I want to just sort of close by saying this. Again, nationalism is a sentiment. It's an emotional desire to protect something that you have in common with a group of people. But in order to protect that, nationalism is willing to sacrifice their own principles for the sake of the collective. George W. Bush infamously declared that we must abandon free market principles to save the free market system. That's a nationalist sentiment. This is how nationalists reason protecting their own interests. Christian nationalism runs the very real risk of abandoning Christian principles to save their Christian 
quote-unquote, system. We saw this with the neoconservatives and American interventionism. And while Christian nationalism is currently trying to withdraw from the global agenda, there are plenty of other opportunities to sacrifice Christian principles to save their so-called Christian system. Awesome. Thank you, Carrie. Our next speaker, who you've probably seen over at the Mises Institute booth, is uh, Ryan Megan, who is going to talk to us about Catholic nationalism and what Catholic nationalists believe, and also offer us a little bit of a historical perspective on this topic, as soon as they figure out how to work technology. <laughs> well, a woman had to do that. <laughs> I notice you're also wearing pants, so that was uh, <laughs> some, some people I've known. Somebody has. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so thank you for having me on the panel. I'm just here really to talk a little bit about the. I'm not going to add a lot to the critique because I already agree with Carrie's critique, including the critique of the old obsolete law and a lot of the same interpretations I would hold to from the New Testament. And so I think we just talk a little bit about. How does Catholic nationalism manifest itself in the modern world, and what is some of, what are some of the natural Catholic inclinations against nationalism that I would argue make it just completely incompatible with Catholic thought in general? And the closest, and the people you will meet, some people who come close to Catholic nationalism, we'll talk about who they are and what they call themselves and that sort of thing. So the question is, really, what is Catholic nationalism? I would just start off real quick with things that it's not, right? Obviously, completely unrelated to any sort of ethnic nationalism. Catholics have always been free to marry any other baptized Catholic anywhere on planet Earth, regardless, assuming they're not already married. Um, and that they're free to marry. For language doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, however you wish to construct that, location doesn't matter, none of that stuff matters. It could only ever be constrained by civil law. So you could see that even in the New World, any baptized Indian was eligible to marry any European. It just didn't matter, it was irrelevant. Certainly there are national churches. Virtually no Catholic advocates for an American Catholic church or for a French Catholic church that's autonomous from the rest of the Catholic world. You have that to some extent in the Eastern churches, right, where you have the Russian Orthodox Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, and even they have some connections to each other. There is a, an idea of the larger Orthodox world, but the Catholics don't even go that far in terms of those sort of semi-autonomous churches. So you can't argue for that. I mean, there are some groups that call themselves like the Polish Catholic Church, the Polish National Catholic Church, but they're schismatic. They're in a state of separation, so. Certainly, that's not an option. Nor is there any Catholic doctrine on what is the correct type of regime. Maybe some Catholics will tell you that, well, monarchy is obviously the correct and ideal type of regime, but that's certainly not true. Some people have argued that, but the Republic of Venice was never condemned for being a republic, nor was the Republic of Genoa or the Republic of Florence or any of these other non-monarchies that have existed in perfectly good standing with the church over many centuries. So there isn't any particular type of government that you have to embrace either. And so there's all those issues then that just really weigh against the idea of any sort of nationalism that is a Catholic nationalist. Now, so the closest I think you would get there 
to any sort of thing we can call Catholic nationalism would be integralism or integralism is what they would call themselves, integralists and integralists. And these people would argue that the ideal government is not just a government that is run by Catholics, but one that is explicitly in favor of Catholic Christianity and would go out of its way to promote that particular faith and also suppress other types of faiths. And they would even use a, a phrase that uh, error has no rights, that you can't have true religious freedom because other religions are false and you can't let people deal in false ideas. Today, we hear this phrase, it's, we're working with our partners to uh, suppress misinformation. This is, the, this is the Christian version of dissing misinformation. What they mean is information we disagree with. And so we can't let people discuss those ideas. And so another part of, about the idea of Christian nationalism is that it's very new, or Catholic nationalism is that it's, it's really quite new. You'll find virtually nothing of it in the first thousand years of the church, nothing among the church fathers. So we're talking after St. Paul, those generations. Go down to Polycarp, St. Ignatius of Antioch, they all focus on the governance of bishops and their importance and their role in the governance of the people, but you never read much at all about the importance of merging the religious authorities with the civil authorities. And part of this is because we're talking late antiquity here, and this is the Roman Empire, and not close friends with the Christian church, and even after Constantine, not the case that Christianity became the official religion, it was tolerated at this point. And then even in Augustine's time, we saw a resurgence of pagan elites who tried to reassert their control over the empire. So it was recognized that the empire was certainly not a Christian empire, and that only ever really attained status in the East, where you then had some development of Caesaropapism, Caesaropapism with some of the emperors in Constantinople. So that was in the West, and when we're talking about the Latin church, there's always been this division between the civil government and the religious authorities, and especially right up until really we're talking about modern times. So the 16th century, where you start to get the formation of the nation state, and then as sort of some people have a freak out in the counter-reformation movement where they're thinking, oh, well, we need a government then to specifically push Catholicism and protect it. Then there's a real freak out after the French Revolution where they're thinking, well, we just need, we need more government power on our side. So then you get guys like Joseph de Maistra who say things like, well, we have to love the prince and he embodies us as a people and we're all united behind these government officials. But that's not at the foundations of the faith at all. And so if you look further into the past, you just don't find traces of that. So it's, it cannot be Catholic doctrine if it just started being important 500 years ago. It has to go back to the beginning and it has to be part of the universal church as well. And so that's always an important issue that needs to be kept in mind. And so you need to just think of it in terms of how things have functioned overall, just like there's never been any difference between a German Benedictine and an Italian Benedictine. This idea that there's something that separates these people meaningfully is nonsense. And in fact, people move between these abbeys without any regard for anything except practical considerations, as in can you speak the local language and that sort of thing. 
So all of that, the fact that really what holds you together is not some sort of local secular culture, but religious culture is what matters. And this was noted in a book by Benedict Anderson called Imagine Communities, where he tries to look at what are the real roots of nationalism. And he notes that prior to the modern era, before nationalism became dominant, a major way that people really identified themselves was really as part of the religious community. And so really, if you're truly Catholic, you should do yourself as being much, having much more in common with a Catholic Nigerian than with an atheist Massachusettsian or an atheist Canadian or someone who lives down your street who who is greatly hostile to your religion. You have far more in common with a Catholic in Vietnam than with that other person. And people need to start viewing it much more in those ways. I think a lot of Catholics would argue. But integralists would argue that, well, actually, you need to merge the civil and the religious authorities. And I'm basically running out of time here. But I would think one way to approach that is you will notice that integralists are heavily Thomas, that a lot of this comes out of Thomas Aquinas' stuff, and that really is a product of the late Middle Ages. I would argue that if you want the more correct view of the church and civil authority, go back to Augustine, who views the church or views civil government with far more pessimism. I think part of the problem that the late medievals had is that things were going their way and they became very optimistic and they thought we can have these civil governments that are very Catholic and work out very well and can be very virtuous. Augustine knew better already, thanks to his time period and what was going on in the world. So if you consult his works on the nature of the state and the nature of princes, I think you get a much more accurate view of what is the, the more hard-headed, less naive Catholic view of how to treat civil government. So I'll go ahead Stop there. Thank you. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to not do an advertisement because we don't do advertisements, although I guess you could call this an advertisement. I'm going to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly ebooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Norman will be closing us out before we go to Q&A, and he'll be giving us a little, I think, pastorally talking to about, you know, what Christian nationalists get wrong and encouraging us to uh, be vigilant. So take it away, Norm. I'm going to probably skip around a little bit. You know, it's a great thing about going last in a panel is that you get to affirm everything that kind of came before and be like, oh, I don't have to say very much. But then again, you look at your notes, you're like, you get it. It's just invalidated all of my notes. Okay. Well, I do have some, perhaps a slightly different perspectives to kind of add on to, uh, or pile on, shall we say, to uh, to the Christian nationalist problem. 
part of it, I think, is, is just the level of definitional confusion that you see out there regarding Christian nationalism itself. Uh, it ranges from somebody like, and I'm going to get this name wrong, Carrie, help me out, Robert Jeffries, Jeffress, Jeffress, a pastor from Dallas, who in a recent panel at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention basically said, well, I'm a, and it was a panel about Christian nationalism, it was a terrible panel, by the way, you can find it on YouTube. Well, I'm a Christian and I, I love my country, I guess that makes me a Christian nationalist and I shall embrace that proudly. And then you have people who might be decent fellows like Eric Metaxas saying right afterwards, well, you know, the left just hurls the epithet Christian nationalism at anything they want to, so I just kind of ignore it. Then they proceed to not really talk anything of substance about this. We're approaching that a little differently here, as you've well noted, because there are at least enough things that we can pay attention to and criticize appropriately for, the, for their vacuousness in theological approach. Because uh, really when it comes down to it, and the Christian nationalist program is really just an activist program mas masquerading as a philosophy. And there's not really a whole lot of intellectual acumen to it. Because if all it is is really just opposing moral evils of our day, then that would be one thing. If all it were were just to say no to certain types of, of incursions of Christian morality in our churches today and to say there's a better way, well, that would be one thing. We'd be doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, but that's not all. They have a commonality amongst the very types of Christian nationalisms that you see out there in that there's always this plan at the end to reestablish states that have a Christian veneer. And as libertarians especially, but also just in general as Christians, if we oppose the state, then this is obviously a problem. And that's something that I think Kerry uh, really goes after well. But because they don't have a lot of particular acumen to them, they tend to get very confused. And it becomes confusing to read. It really kind of affirms that nice little affirmation, you know, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, you can baffle them with bull. And that's basically what you get in all this stuff. Case in point is reading Andrew Torba's book on Biblical Guide to Taking Dominion and Discipling Nations. This book is awful, but it's worth five bucks just for the laughs. It's really, really bad, guys. It's basically pseudo-intellectual cover for an activist program that they wish to enact against people. One of the things that Torba writes about, and something we haven't really mentioned here, you'll see oftentimes this notion, and like, well, all we want is just to exit this society and create a parallel society that is built on with Christian institutions at the core. And yet, within paragraphs, they'll even say, oh, we don't want to overthrow anything. We don't need to take positions of power. And yet, not even a chapter later, they're talking about the plan to go and make sure and reestablish the Christian nation in a way that we've been describing with varying types of Christian laws in place in a way that we've, we've already been talking about here. So this is exactly what they want. And one of one kind of set of words that you can kind of maybe keep in the back of your mind as you kind of see this sort of stuff is remembering that these guys are basically engaging in a, what we call a Mott and Bailey approach or a Mott and Bailey fallacy sometimes. And whenever you hear the words, well, all I want, or I just want, or we just want to do X, make no mistake, that is what's going on. So what, what does that mean? This huge, the Mott and Bailey approach is basically to advance some type of rather indefensible position, and then once you actually get challenged on it, to retreat back to the easily defensible position. I just want to oppose with the moral incursions in the Christian faith that we see amongst our society today. All I just want is to, all I want is just for the Christians to have a little more influence in our culture today. When you start hearing stuff like that, beware. Uh, and so there are answers to this, though, that are so much better. 
Go back to play people like solid theologians like Ryan Niebuhr and the book Christ and Culture, where he talks about very close, I'll wrap up here momentarily, seven different ways to engage in Christ and culture. I won't go through all of them, but there's really one approach that this is what the Christian nationalists are doing. They're basically doing the circle the wagons approach and then gearing up for attack. And so, again, Christian nationalism really isn't anything, isn't, is not an old theology. It's not something that, that they're trying to, that they're trying to bring us back to something. This is something new. This is more what we might call an innovative theology, and we should always be suspect of things like that. There are so many better ways to get back to where we need to be. The protection against this, similarly to what I said in the panel discussion this morning, with, or at least you'll see the parallels here, what we need to do in order to oppose this is get better theology and better education back to solid principles, back to the core of our faith. Go read the church fathers. Go read people like N.T. Wright or Reformers or Calvin or Luther. I mean, there's any number of people that have written more, more intellectually superior stuff about this, and we can get better at just being Christians. From the outset, we don't need to take dominion like this. That's not what dominion means. And so we don't need to pay attention to Stephen Wolf or Doug Wilson in as much as trying to adhere to their values, but we do need to respond to them because, make no mistake, they are deceiving people in what they are doing. We need to be cognizant of that. And the more that they advance their agenda in that respect, the more we need to advance our own set of ideas uh, in a much better and comprehensive manner. And so unfortunately, we have to have this session but I'm glad that we were able to do this together and hopefully encourage you guys to get back into the Word. If you're perhaps a little less active in your church, well, consider getting back involved in that too. And I hope that all of this is encouraging to you. That there is an answer to all this garbage out there. We just need to get better at what we're already doing. And so that's really all I want to say about that. I hope we will have some good Q&A from here on out. All right. Well, yeah, we'll go into Q&A now. Start here in the front. Go ahead, what's your question? So I just want to say I really enjoyed this uh, panel, and uh, I've learned a lot, but I do kind of want to push back a little bit. One thing that I know is uh, the Catholic thinker Russell Kirk, who is a big influence in 20th century conservatism, uh, he talked about the importance of building up traditions, and his focus was focus being uh, the developing and preserving of the American tradition. Uh, he wasn't a nationalist that he wanted to force his Catholicism on our people, but he still was a nationalist in the sense that he loved his country and wanted to put forward the institutions that that was built. So I want to say, would you say that's a kind of nationalism? And then number two, I also want to think that going to Catholic social teaching, there is a, you have subsidiary and solidarity. Subsidiary the idea is that government should be as close to the people as possible, which I kind of think is a kind of soft nationalism. And then you also have solidarity, which is the idea of having the, the body of Christ in the universal church and having the um, locality's role in that. So I also want to get on your input, is that how do we make sure that the solidarity doesn't overcome, oh, does it overcome, was it subsidiary, and how subsidiary doesn't overcome solidarity? Okay, well, as to the Russell Kirk piece, well, he was a conservative, and so not a liberal in the sense that, avowedly not a classical liberal in that sense, also a cold warrior, so he viewed all of that stuff in contra, in the context of building up this culture to fight the Soviets. Really, I mean, when you look at it, that was a major part of his program. I'm not too familiar with his whole war, but I know he was against the United States going to World War II. I know he did have Captain Riders who were war hawks, but I don't, but 
He was a reasonable cult warrior, like comparatively. But, I mean, he wrote a lot of work saying that basically that the United States is the essential bulwark against global communism and had a necessary and central role to that. Getting dangerously close to ideas of like America as the last best hope sort of stuff. I don't see, he's one of these Catholics who I just don't see as his ideology being especially Catholic in his political and ideological work. It seemed that he was trying to, it reminds me of the sort of mid 20th century efforts by Catholics to really fit in and become part of the larger American polity which has never really been possible. That was something, if I'd had more time, that was something I could have talked about, is that Catholic nationalism has always been especially impossible in America because it's always been a majority Protestant country. So it, it just doesn't seem to fit for me what his effort was there. It was just so generic, just so basic in terms of, well, we have all these shared values and we should really build them together. But the specifics always strike me as just woefully inadequate. So it's always hard for me to just determine exactly what it means. All right. Next question. Come back here. Thank you. Yeah, guys, uh, thank you for, uh, for all your... So what, I mean, it strikes me that a lot of these writers... Uh, I, mean, I recently read Adrian Vermeule's account of constitutionalism. They all seem to be reacting to the excesses of modern liberalism. And I was really struck by the extent to which a lot of these guys, Vermeule in particular really want to push the administrative state. I mean, just in a mind-boggling way. But my question is, to what extent do we go as, as good Madisonian Christians? We still believe in separation of church and state. How far does the Madisonian Christian go in pushing or promoting or seeking to promote quasi-Christian values? Carrie used the example of blasphemy, but how about something a little harder? I mean, should people be advocating against um, laws limiting pornography or other various moral, so-called morals offenses? I mean, where do we draw that line as far as how far we do go in a, in a modern Madisonian republic where we, we adhere to Christian values? Uh, I think that's a great question, and it reminds me of Frederic Bastiat's quote about just and I'm paraphrasing, just because we don't want the state doing a thing doesn't mean we don't want a thing done at all. And so we would say that the role of civil governance is strictly limited to those violations of civil justice, right, of civil liberties. Now, when it comes to the non-aggressive immorality questions, blasphemy, gay marriage, the trans issues, abortion even, although there's a caveat with that because we do believe that abortion is murder. Those problems are certainly problems to be solved by society, but the best way to solve those problems are in the economy or in the church through community. So, for example, we may disagree that uh, homosexuals should be allowed to marry, right, for example, but we don't believe that the state should be involved in that. So our solution wouldn't be like the Christian nationalists would say, only heterosexuals can marry. We would say, no, civil authorities should step out of that role. That's not their job. And that leaves churches free to 
participate in the weddings that they choose, and it leaves homosexuals free to associate with whomever they choose. And so it's a way to solve that problem peacefully. I do also want to say, and this is to touch a little bit on this gentleman's question about tradition. Usually what Christians are concerned about with the culture is protecting things like family values, the milieu in which their children are growing up in. And so the question we should ask ourselves is who creates culture, right? Who does that? Well, that's you and I. So in our economic activity, in our activity with our communities or faith-based organizations, we are the ones who are creating culture. When government creates culture, that is a culture that is predicated on the use of violence and you get the situation that you have now where everything is distorted, you can't speak your mind without fear of retribution. Those are problems. So it's not to say that we don't want to protect these things about our culture, it's where's the best place to protect them. And that the best place to protect them is outside of civil governance, in the family, in our communities, and in the economy. Awesome. All right, we have time for two or three more questions, depending on how long they are. So we'll go with you next. What do you think about some of the, uh, maybe the, I don't know if they still call themselves libertarians, but people like uh, Buck Johnson and Matt Erickson going to orthodoxy and things like that. I noticed we didn't have anybody who was orthodox on here. So your, your question is about the orthodox view of things? Yeah. And what we think of yeah. the growing trend of people yeah. who are kind of going into the uh, orthodox yeah. uh, rabbit hole. Yeah. Norm, I don't know if you want to take that one. Yeah, are, are, are you referring to perhaps like the Roger or like Benedict option stuff? Well, I, 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 I said Buck Johnson and Matt Erickson. Right, well, are they, are they kind of following after that kind of plan? I, I don't know who that person is. I, I'm not I, really I don't familiar. know who you're talking about there. Uh, okay, well, that's okay. To an extent, you know, we only have limited time, so we didn't really address an orthodox view in part because we're not super familiar with that on its own. And so I don't really have a grand scheme of like, oh, this is the exact answer. Sorry, I don't really have a, don't really have a thoroughgoing knowledge in that. As it pertains to what we have seen sometimes in, in varying corners and kind of just at the periphery, it is interesting to know that something like Roger's Benedict option is kind of like the first step in, their, in, in some of these CN's Christian nationalist plans, but they never stop. Indeed, Ronald Bieber in Christ and Culture notes this, and, and I don't think he uses the word circling the wagons. That was the phrase that one of my old theology professors used to use in terms of like cultural disengagement. And that there are ways in which you know, Christians can just kind of exit being involved in culture altogether. And the, the kind of innovative part here that they're getting to is really just the establishment of what they call the parallel society. But that's, again, that's not where they stop. And if that's all that they wanted, well, then that would be one thing. But it's never where they, that's never where they end up. If that's kind of where Mr. Buck Johnson is or whatnot, I can't really you know, say too much after that. I've never heard of this person you're talking about, so that's I can't okay. comment on that. All right, we'll do one more question here. As much as I've read and listened on podcasts, I've never heard black, Mexican, Native American nationalists. I've only heard white Christian nationalists. And there are white nationalists, they're made separate, Christian non-white. So in other words, is it even worth talking about both? Are they always wrapped into one? Is it always white Christian nationalism? Which to me is a little scary, but I'm on a hard time listening to these guys, Stephen Wolf or any of them, and not 
hear a subtext of white Christian nationalism underneath? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think part of the problem, I would say, with the white nationalist moniker is that when critical theorists use that language, they're using that to refer to anything classical liberal. So it wouldn't even matter if you were to say, um, Maj Touré, who's a black man, he's classically liberal, but they would call him a white nationalist, not because of his the color of his skin, obviously, but because he's following an ideology that is quote unquote white or European. The not all Christian nationalists take and or promote the idea of an ethnocentric sort of nationalism. I believe Stephen Wolf does, not all of them do. And certainly from a Christian perspective, we would reject that wholeheartedly because, yeah, because we know that the church is drawn from all nations, all tongues, you know, all languages, from all walks of life. And so it would absolutely be, I would say, even anti-Christian to say that a Christian, quote-unquote, Christian nationalist perspective is also ethnocentric. I think that is incredibly problematic. But I would be aware of the fact that when the left uses the word white nationalist, they are talking about classical liberalism. They're just not using that language, and it doesn't matter what skin color you are. So I very loaded term. Yeah, very, very, very loaded term. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. If you have any more questions, we will be at the booth the rest of the day and tomorrow. Uh, we'll also be hanging out here for a little bit afterwards. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.